In June 2011, Thomas Kale sat in conversation with Alex Timbers at the STC offices. Their discussion explores how they followed their respective impulse to start their own theater company and delves into the challenge of creating new work. They also address their inspirations and those who have influenced them as directors. This is Hal Prince, and you are listening to In Conversation With... This Masters of the Stage program is produced by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation and is presented by SDCF and the American Theatre Wing. Here we are. I am here with Alex Timbers, who just joined us. Hello, sir. Hello. Nice to see you. Great to see you, Tommy. In this, this fine room here at 1501 Broadway. We are high above the 90-degree uh, weather. I did not really realize that the STC offices were uh, done in a Rococo style. Yes. We did that just for you. I see where I see now where all the dues go. Yes. Uh, I got in here pretty early this morning, um, and this is actually glue and paint on my hand from the work. Oh, wow. I'm very, I'm very skilled. I'm very trained. Well, the next generation will be grateful for the work you did this morning. You are the next generation, Alex. Let's talk about that. Um, I appreciate you coming in. You know, one of the th- one of the things that I wanted to you know basically explore by getting a chance to sit down and, and talk to other directors and people to do this is, um, you know, we don't work together. Um, you know, generally speaking, um, there's this sort of crazy competitive idea that there are X amount of jobs and there's only this many people that can get them and and so there's this strange tension that often exists and I, I felt that I, I don't have a, a lot of friends that are directors. Uh, you're someone that I consider a friend that, that also works in this field um, and have, I, I, you know, we sort of have through the years, I'm not someone who like calls you when you're in tech and I'm like, hey man, how can I help? But you've been really supportive. You've come see stuff that I've done. You always make sure to find me or write a nice email or, or lie to me at just the right time. Um, and uh, and that, that means a lot because I feel like there's, the, there's a fellowship that I miss and, and here's a chance to kind of talk about that Absolutely. a little bit. Um, Absolutely. And uh, I, was, I was thinking about when I met you, which I have a pretty distinct memory of. Please. Do you recall at all? I don't recall. And I don't want that to be a judgment, but let the record show. <laughs> I remember, and he doesn't. Um, it was at the John Houseman Theater. Okay. Uh, it was after the Scientology pageant. Right. And right. Um, I'd heard about you because I had some friends that uh, said, hey, there's this guy, and he's doing stuff. And I'd started a little theater company, and, and you had started a little theater company. And mm-hmm. I was always intrigued by what other folks were doing. And I remember seeing this show and thinking that it was wicked and wonderful and delightful. I was like, oh, so who is that? That tall guy over there, he seems like he's uh, he's cool. He seems like he's a little hipper than I am. I'm going to go Please. and uh, shake his hand and say hello. And I remember you just being like, you were you seemed genuinely happy that I was there. Um, you had less idea who I was then than you even do now. Um, but I remember I was like, oh, here's this guy who made this thing. And I was just, I remember thinking, take note. And, um, and it, I've sort of, from a, a slight distance, been able to kind of watch all the, or as much of the stuff that you've done as, as possible. And I just have this image of you, like, watching all of these very happy audience members stream out. Um, and just wanted to talk about that experience for you, because that's, that's how I met you, but obviously you've been doing a lot of things before then. But how, how did that particular project come about? Um, I had, um, and I can go into sort of how Lefer, the idea of Lefer Corbusier, which is my downtown theater company, right. uh, came into being, and it's, it's kind of an interesting story, I think. Yeah. But, the, uh, but basically with that, I, had, uh, I was working at the time with uh, a really talented uh, writer-composer named Kyle Jarrow. Sure. And we had... Uh, I had been doing, as soon as I got into the city, these sort of like 
funny dance pieces that I was making, and I always sort of like uh, from the beginning was kind of generating a lot of the work. I wasn't uh, really working so much on new plays. And uh, that summer, summer 2003, we had done our first, uh, the company's first show, which was my sort of first show. It was a showcase uh, that ran for 16 performances down to, uh, downtown at Hero Arts Center. Mm-hmm. And it ran in July and August. And I had always had this idea that I wanted to do a piece about Scientology. And I thought for some reason that doing it with small children was kind of a fun idea. Right. And uh, I've been c- trying to convince Kyle to, to, to Did write you know something. him from? I knew him from college. From college okay. We were in the freshman show together. We were in the marriage of Bet and Boo, and I was uh, Boo, and he played my son. Um, and uh, we were close friends. And uh, and sometime during the middle of that run, he was like, "I think that's kind of a good idea, and I have some ideas for it." Um, and so we we. Uh, being young, you don't have that those sort of thoughts of like, oh, it takes six to eight years to develop a musical. Right. And in fact, we were like, uh, well, this seems like it would be a holiday show because the idea was to do it kind of as a nativity pageant. So let's stage it in two months. Perfect. And why I was, not? Yeah, I co-founded a space called the Tank, right. uh, which still exists uh, in sort of a different form. But uh, we had, we had this like uh, sweet real estate deal on 42nd between 9th and 10th of having this space. There was a theater space, an installation space, and a courtyard. And uh, each of the founders had a different discipline they were programming, and I was in charge of theater. And in fact, we actually ever only produced uh, two theater shows. One was directed by Sam Gold that Betty Shamia had uh, written and was in. Okay. And then this was this was the second. And the only way I thought we could do the Scientology pageant, because we had just come off the show where we had, you know, as you do with showcases, lose money, was to do it very, very cheaply. Um, and the way to enable us to do it very cheaply... Do you remember cheap, what the budget was at that first $5,000 $5, for this. Right. I think for the previous show, it had been something like $9,000. But for this, it was going to be $5,000... And the way you could do that was by being completely non-equity mm-hmm. and uh, by having free rehearsal space, which this theater space, uh, being a, a, a member of this theater space, allowed me to do. Um, and uh, and the production, the concept was to do it very, like have very cheap production values, to do it like a kid's nativity pageant would be, sort of cardboard Right, you built out. it into the, the, the conceit of the show. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, and uh, so I remember, so Kyle began work in August and September, we did uh, a re- reading of it with adults. Mm-hmm. And ultimately what the show became was a 10-actor sort of play with music uh, with 8- to 12-year-old children telling a very upbeat, positive retelling of the life story of L. Ron Hubbard in the idiom of a nativity pageant. Right. It was about 50 minutes long. It uh, sort of relied on deadpan comedy, but then, as with a lot of these sort of gimmicky shows... Uh, that I was creating early on had a kind of twist at the end, so it was uh, sort of emotionally a little daring. Mm-hmm. Um, and the music was all to track uh, because it was trying to emulate this band at the time, Polyphonic Spree sound, mm-hmm. which was like a 30 member sort of um, indie rock, gospel, revivalist uh, pop band from Texas. And so the kids wore another wore, one of those. Yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> and the kids wore these robes, uh, much like uh, Polyphonic Spree did at the time, like sort of church robes. Very cool. And um, da, 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 da. That was, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, exactly. See, look it. at that. Some <laughs> melodies do stick in my head. Absolutely. Um, so 
So the show, there was that first iteration where, we, and that was. So that was at the tank. So we did the, the reading in September. Yep. We started, and we were doing auditions at that time. We started rehearsals in October. We opened uh, around uh, Thanksgiving, and uh, we, and then we ended um, somewhere around Christmas, maybe right before Christmas. Um, and uh, next door was a theater called the John Houseman Theater, and one of the founders of the tank's dad ran that theater and he was really interested in the show okay and so what we were able to do was uh transfer it there um very quickly like like, we, like in between like the you know the lunchtime where like you picked up the stuff and then moved it next door right? literally yeah literally like i remember i was working in the new victory at the time and i had a lunch break and we were open we were we, we did one of the stupid things you do when you're when you're young where you're like well the first performance will be our opening right. and i i ran over during lunch break and was cutting the the carpeting up and uh, we were and so we, we literally like i teched it on a lunch break and ran back to work you know my boss being none the wiser right. and that night uh we opened and um and you know i would say it was it was a sort of it was probably a three four week run but it it was and it was successful but i'd say it was in no small part uh due to sort of two factors one uh, that the Scientologists uh, became irritated at us mm. and uh, wrote me a letter, which the New York Times made public. And two, ben the New York Brand- Times is a newspaper. New- yes, yes. Okay. <laughs> and uh, and then uh, I think because of that, uh, Ben Brantley decided to come see it and uh, wrote a, a funny review, a, a largely favorable review. Uh, but he, he said about Kyle and me, uh, I don't know who these people are. I don't know if they have any idea that what they've created is good. <laughs> you know, as if we were like uh, people who just sort of like uh, were uh, sort of had walked into uh, a, 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 somehow creating a good show without any idea mm-hmm. of like you know craft or what 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 was actually appealing to the audience about it. But it was great, and actually, it started. Uh, a terrific, uh, and I think it was a fair thing to have said at the time, but it started a great relationship with Brantley, and he's been very kind to me since then, um, uh, seeing seeing other shows, and sort of, um, because he was in there at the ground floor, kind of got, you know, the idea of what the theater I wanted to create w- was about. Right. And, and I remember, I mean, for a, a show that ran for so few performances in a small venue, I mean, so... This was not a show that tens of thousands of people even saw. It, it, it had like a, there was an energy around it. You know, people wrote about it, people talked about it, and I, it was that's how. I mean, it sort of came across. Uh, you know, being someone we're about the same age, yeah. that hey, this is what they're doing. Like, look, look what they did, and it had that very like DIY. Let's be scrappy. Like, let's make this ourselves. Let's go and and push together this small group of money and and you know paint these walls and put on these things but that there was and still an, an overall vision for it that I think having seen you know maybe four or five six of your uh, you know of your pieces throughout the years that the DNA for a lot of that you know I mean it felt like it was a related cousin to a lot of the stuff you ended up doing and so the fact that that's where I met you and then you know the next time you know when I sort of encountered you whether it was at Hedatron, which we can talk about, or, or Boozy, um, you know, sort of the stuff, again, the stuff kind of pre-bloody-bloody, uh, I was like, oh, right, this guy has a point of view, and I feel like that's something, you know, we're always looking for writers and their voice, what's their voice, you know, but I think for directors, having a point of view that's that strong was rare, and I think that's what struck me initially. Well, um, that's very kind of you, thank you. Know, you. And someone that, was, that seemed genuinely interested in entertaining an audience, um, and yet, like, poking us a little bit, in a way where we walked out after 50 minutes, and by the way, 
who doesn't love a 50-minute show? <laughs> well played. Um, thinking about this larger idea of mythology and what stories are written down, um, and I think that that's something that certainly is germane and has been. So it certainly made me take notice and... You know, and, and I think many other people as well. Probably well, you know. thank you. You know, I, I, I like you know to this day. You know, I'm really interested in um, a kind of showmanship, mm. and I, I love those. You know, when I think about the sort of past directors, I think about those people who were showmen and were. And so, who, who I mean, were you like? How did you find out about that? And who were those people? Um, I think the people that I was really sort of inspired by. You know, whether I had seen a lot of their work or just read about it, were people like. Uh, uh, Des Mackinoff, Lepage, R- mm-hmm. yeah. you know, I, I think, you know, I, you know, even as a kid, I'd seen a lot of, of, uh, Jerry Zaks. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, th- I think things like that, which were sort of like, um, endlessly entertaining and Des works in a way of always thinking about sort of lifting. How can we take this thing and then provide at the next chorus another visual lift or at the bridge mm-hmm. you know shift perspectives and stuff like that and I think that always having that kind of um, it's almost an ADD sensibility of how can we continually to like sort of um, uh, shift and enhance and uh, you know uh Cha- you know, ch- challenge and entertain. I, th- I think that stuff is is uh, is fascinating. And to me, like those early shows came across, I think a little as gimmicky. And uh, I think what what pleased people about them was that there was actually, while the you know the one liner on them was gimmicky, and that's what got people in the theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there was a lot of the sort of substance. The idea of doing a show about sort of a cult like religion with small children works because. Uh, you know, as children, you're like, you know, the idea of being a sheep following to something is is sort of uh, what it is to be a child and to be taught. But also, um, you know, when you're talking about Scientology specifically, the idea of becoming clear, of like taking all the sort of the engrams and bad thoughts that pollute your mind, you almost want to get back to the idea of being a child. And so while the concept, while there was a sort of hooky concept, I think that sort of resonated thematically. And then, of course... Um, you know the ending, which was sort of very sort of uh, dark and strange. It was all the more unsettling because because you know it, it is children, right? And this this word gimmick, which uh, you know, which obviously has a charge to it on its own, and mm-hmm. um, Gypsy thought of it in one way, and, and other people think of it in other ways. Yeah. This, uh, you know, what does that mean to you? I mean, like, is it about getting someone's? You know, as you said, how do you get someone to decide on this day? I'm going to take my money. I'm going to go to this place, and I'm going to sit down and give them my time. Yeah, so, I, I mean, it's 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 something that the movies do very well. It's like being able to distill the concept into one line. Um, and for me, like someone who's interested in high concept comedy, high concept political theater, to be able to say, okay, it's Hedda Gabler with robots. Right. Okay, it's we're going to do a Christian evangelical haunted house, but in Brooklyn, or we're going to do Andrew Jackson, but with emo rock. Right. Um, you know, you can tell sort of immediately what the idea is, and uh, if you'll sort of like it, and then and then the challenge is then, you know, not so much coming up with the idea is how to not only fulfill the pr- the uh, the premise in a pleasurable way, but then how to move beyond that and actually do something kind of substantive. Right. Well, I think that you know, I if you look at some of the the, the things that you just talked about in Peter and the Starcatcher, I'd, I'd include in there as well as, as something just that I that I'd seen. These shows have a big heart. I mean, it's about people that, you know, Andrew Jackson literally feels too much. Yeah. Right? I mean, so you found a, uh, 
a musical vocabulary that was about expressing these feelings in this very elevated way. Um, you know, the idea of taking Hedda Gabler and making it, you know, robots or, you know, removing them from humanity sort of plays that up. But there is something within all of these. I didn't see Hell House, probably because I'm afraid of both Brooklyn and um, haunted houses. Uh, so you took the two things and uh, and just scared me too much. But you uh, love evangelicism. See, that's what's so see, confusing. That's, it's, but for some reason, that didn't just pull me through. <laughs> that still couldn't get me on like the Q train or the F. Um, <laughs> Brooklyn stand up. Uh, so, you know, this, you know, these these people that sort of uh, are at the center of, you know, whether it's a Hedda or it's um, an Elrond or it's an Andrew Jackson. Um, where did you, what, what did you study? What, did you study uh, literature and history growing? I mean, I, as I, in college, or were you someone that was? I'm going to be on stage. I want to perform. And how did when, that when I was like in um, when I was, I grew up in Manhattan, and uh, when I was like 12, I was making funny videos. I had a public access TV show. When I went to high school, I uh, had a public access TV show, and I was someone who always who always loved that. I wish um, we could like. You know, let's roll the tape. Yeah, exactly. I don't know that you'd want to. <laughs> um, but then, uh, you know, when I, I applied to film schools and I applied to liberal arts schools and I ended up going to Yale and uh, Yale doesn't have a real like, uh, you know, it's, it's not a conservatory. It's a practice. It's a critical studies place, right. both in film and theater uh, and particularly in film. So without being able to practically make something, I started thinking, well, how, how do I keep creating? Um, and so I started getting involved in improv comedy and sketch comedy and I acted a little bit in theater and then I figured uh, I got really interested in the idea of directing theater um, in college that happened? yeah because yeah. I was very interested in in, in uh, comedy and sort of the mechanics of comedy and uh, so I started thinking about uh, I started when the first two first things I directed were uh, sex farces mm. and uh and I had a great time doing them, and so I started kind of expanding my range a little in college. Um, and I, uh, and in senior year, uh, three friends and I created something that was sort of uh, very strange, which was a, a, a dance theater piece that was, we didn't know what early 80s BAM Next Wave was, but I had this conception. You know, you in college you have a conception of what experimental theater is. Right. And so I... Um, it was my uh, three friends and myself, and we wore uh, sherbet-colored uh, pants, no socks or shoes, and wife beaters, and did gestural choreography to Steve Reich, Philip Glass music, telling the story of math, the history of math, and man's relationship to math. And the piece was called Une pièce de mouvement historique avec le géométrie. And it was entirely impenetrable. You would not understand what was going on at any moment unless you read the course packet that came along with the show. So you would come to the theater, you'd get this course packet. The first third of it would be an outline with footnotes, really explaining every discrete section of it and what's happening. And uh, and then there'd be a section in the middle of primary sources and a section in the back of blank pages so you could take your own notes as you were as you were watching. Was this in the student theater or was this in the this through was, the curriculum? Yeah, like, no, the, it was a black box. Yeah, black, okay. Everything at Yale. You uh, there were no uh, school productions really. It was all student run, student, student inspired. Okay. Yeah, and um, and the actual reading period before the piece was longer than the piece itself. Um, it, you know, it, like a lot of the stuff that I'm interested in, I think of it as a you know, I, I, it's because I'm intrigued by something or it feels almost prankish, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, I created this piece. It was, it was really fun. And uh, when I came to New York, my first job was as an intern at Manhattan Theater Club. And I sort of looked around and I was like, 
wow, no one tells you in college that you can't direct before the age of 50. Right. And there's no, I mean, you know, you're a very successful young director, but, you know, I think it's it's easy to say that, uh, and very clear to say that there's not a lot of opportunities for people under the age of 50 to direct. No one's going to say, here's a Chekhov play, or here's, you know, the new Terrence McNally play, we'd really like you to do it. Um, so I thought, well, how can I, you know, and I'm sure you had a similar thing when you created your company. How can I create my own opportunities? Right. Um, I was doing dark nights for different companies producing, and uh, I sort of looked around, and I was like, you know, it seems to me that um, doing, uh, just having a mission statement that was as broad as new plays or new musicals, or we do classics in a funky way, uh was broad. There's so many companies. How can you sort of set yourself apart? And I thought, well, what if we had a really specific mission statement? And I thought back to that piece in Pièce de Mouvement, okay. and I was like, what if what if my company was all about lampooning avant-garde theater tropes while celebrating them, and lampooning academia while celebrating them? And uh, and uh, and I had this sort of breakthrough moment uh, in college where. What happened after college? But I had seen, as part of an experimental theater class, the Worcester Group show Brace Up. The uh, I think it was Three Sisters, and uh, I was like, "Oh my God, this seemed." I saw it on video, and I was like, "This is exactly what I think." Like the cliche of experimental. And then I saw it in New York, and I was like, "I thought it was so funny," and I cried at the end. And I was like, "Wow, experimental theater actually can be really funny and deeply moving." And um, so this idea of creating a company that did irreverent work about historical figures uh, and tried to use irony and sort of postmodern humor to sort of get beyond, to get to a new level of emotionality, to get beyond the artifice of theater and actually say, okay, yes, we're all in a theater. We're all, we get, you know, people singing is weird and mm-hmm. all this, you know, why, why do people break into song? But let's acknowledge that, and then let's move beyond it and actually get to a place that feels really sort of visceral and emotional. So that was the idea of the company, and I think one of the misconceptions about me, I think, that uh, that you brought up, uh, is that I think a lot of people think, oh, his work's really, like, ironic and glib and, like, spectacle-driven. But that's just what I said. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm a, a sentimentalist. I believe... Uh, uh, I, you know, the shows that I do um, have a lot of heart, and uh, you know, Hedatron is a silly, silly idea, but it's deeply moving at the end. I think Andrew Jackson is something that comes from a place of real sort of emotionality, um, and uh, has a, you know, does have a tenderness and a gentleness to it, and I think it's not a musical that's setting out to say, to make you at the end cry or laugh but to really sort of consider uh, what it is to be an American. And, I, and you know, and, and when you, I think you think about Andrew Jackson's journey, I think it's, I think it's a, sort of a, a, a sort of deeply painful emotional journey. But, you know, he's an antihero, so it's, 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 I think, you know, it, it's complex, um, which to me is, is really sort of valuable. And um, so, anyway... The, the company that that's the sort of the story of the company well, yeah well it, it, you know there is something about you know the the construct of that show and i saw um you know, there were there are quite a few versions of it right. um i saw it probably like mid level you know you know a couple things were before for sure and a couple things after when they did it um in in the public when it was in the lab so mm-hmm. I saw it in the lab. I actually was one of the four people in New York who did not see the off-Broadway um, smash production. Oh, um, and then went back and visited again when it was on Broadway. 
So seeing it sort of at these two different moments, obviously knowing uh, you know, about the development of new musicals um, and, and having a, a sense, just in my own personal experience of you know, what, can, uh, what can be learned from mm-hmm. a, a lab production, what can be learned from a full production, having a chance to kind of get back in there. You know, there was something that struck me, though, uh, in seeing it up here in particular uh, on Broadway, was you know this um, the the connection to to the show felt just as visceral for me as it did when I was eight feet away. You know, I mean, like when oh, I went, you. you know in the lab, you know, there's not a lot of depth in that space. I mean, you were really right on top of it, and it sort of it was almost like a diorama because it was like like a, a rectangular box. Yes. Whereas here, you guys, you know, what you when you made the theater so immersive. Um, you know, as you walk in, you're taken somewhere else. I mean, you seem interested in transportation and, mm-hmm. and taking people wherever they need to go, but also acknowledging the artifice. You did just walk into a theater. Yeah. But I like this idea that, or I'm, I'm, I'm struck by this idea that, you know, irony or um, glibness or concept to you is a way to explore emotion as a way, uh, instead of protect yourself from from it. Yeah, I is think that, is that a fair yes, thing to say? I think like, you know, I think that a lot of people, particularly young people, uh, and normal people, like I mean, when I say normal people, like non people have seen normal heart, you mean. Yeah. <laughs> the, the 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 sort of not your average theater audience has a hard time when people break into song. Um, I think that people that theater today deals with that in different ways to sort of to uh, you know, you see in movie trailers like you know, Phantom of the Opera. When you see that trailer, you can't see anyone singing. They're just like running down at the end of a hallway. Or uh, you know, Dreamgirls. They don't sing in the first like twenty minutes of that movie, and then suddenly, I mean, they they have proscenium numbers, but no, like so I'm so happy or I'm so sad. I can sing, and then suddenly Jamie Fox like twenty minutes and busts out with a song, and it's yeah, 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 and it's like it's shocking to people. But you know, uh, there's a sort of wind up into it, and so. For for me, I see Broadway dealing with it in different ways. I feel like you're in town deals with it by saying, "Yes, we're at a musical, and what a terrible name for a musical, you know." And, and it allows us, okay, you right. know, we can. They are they are acknowledging that. Did that show have an impact on you? Um, Did you see it off Broadway or Broadway? Or? I saw it on Broadway. Yeah, I, I think it. You know, I think I think it had less of an impact on me than I think on. Um, the larger the community, community at large. the community because that was 2004, right? That was around the time. I think that was the 2004 Tonys or 2003, 2004. Yeah, I think I think that's right. And uh, you know, hairspray I think does in a different way. There's there's a wink, you know. There's a sort of a sense of um, you know, there's a winkingness to the whole thing, and it allows okay, we get they get they we were all in on the same joke. Um, for, so that that seems that seems you know. Uh, important to audiences and so what I'm looking for is I'm not really interested in creating work that's campy or that's um, or that's like you know sly boots but I am interested in breaking down the the barrier you know and that's why I'm interested a lot in like sort of 360 design and immersive uh, shows that don't um, that don't you know the audience does isn't in a dark room on the other side of the footlights and what sort of tools can we use to uh, you know whether they be th- what sort of meta theatrical or design or narrative tools can we use to sort of allow everyone say okay yes we're all here at a musical we're all here at a theater piece now let's get beyond that and be able to actually just but everybody d- the audience and the performers so yeah. there so there's a communion yeah. so this idea of winking this idea of saying uh, I acknowledge this is about inclusion absolutely it's about saying to the audience at large um, because I think that you. 
you know, you, you have been able to create uh, work. And obviously, look, a, a show being on Broadway with Bloody Bloody is a very different experience than, than and just in terms of it being part of a, a billion-dollar machine, yeah. you know, where when people come to New York from out of town, they want to see a Broadway show. And that's why big hits are good for Broadway, because if they can't get a ticket to Wicked, maybe they'll go see something else. If they can't get a ticket right. to Phantom, like, these shows help the lifeblood of, of smaller shows or shows that are um, absolutely you know, that are that are trying to find their footing. Um, but I think, you know, one of the things that you and I have in common, although our work I, I, I would be maybe a very lame uh, dissertation for somebody to not waste their time on, um, but. I think ultimately I'm a populist. I mean, that's one of the things Absolutely. that I yeah. that I sort of came to realize over these last few years that it's as important for me to try to create something that's that can speak to someone who sees 20 shows a year and have the person next door, you know, next seat over, who sees maybe one thing a year, maybe one thing every five years, and can look at it and say, "Oh, this is for me too." So that idea of inclusion um, uh, I is, feel feels like something that you also are absolutely in terms of the type of the type of characters that you have on stage in In the Heights, the type of sound, the type of uh, subject matter you're dealing with on Lombardi, or, you know, in your Lincoln Center show, the type of characters you're depicting in life experience, it feels like you're not talking to the same, you know, 50,000 people that are, that, you know, go to see every Broadway show or spend time on all that chat or broadwayworld.com. And that, that's exactly true for me, too. I'm really, I, you know, I, I I grew up seeing musicals and growing up plays on Broadway, so you know obviously I love that world. But to me, the real uh, the real joy of something like Andrew Jackson or the Pee Wee Herman show is that uh, it brings it's it's about bringing an alternative com- comedy sensibility to Broadway. It's about saying the type of comedy that people like in the real world that like go see Will Ferrell movies or watch uh, you know Children's Hospital on TV, on you know, right, yeah. on Adult Swim. Uh, there's a place for you guys at, in theater. The type of music that people listen to, whether it be hip hop, like in the Heights, or or sort of uh, a more sort of like indie punk rock sort of thing. That there's th- that sound is represented uh, on Broadway too, and 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 a kind of uh, the kind of big images that you see in a David LaChapelle photo shoot, or um, that you might see in some sort of sexy uh, commercial, or in a Panic at the Disco. Um, you know, uh, for Vogue photo shoot. You know, we we can deliver that as well. There's uh, there's a play, there's a sort of an analog in theater. There's a um, that's that to me is is really exciting. And you know, it's it's hard. I, I think obviously certain shows are are far more uh, successful at reaching a broader audience. But I think you know the 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 things what we can do is as young people is move the ball a little further down the field. Mm-hmm. Well, you know this this idea um, of being part of this larger community. And look, I I you know can say I want to be a populist, and yet it obviously feels um, feels good when the people that do this work every day also respect oh, and, and connect to it. Um, you know, but there there's something you know that that I think you know with Pee Wee, um, and when I when I got a chance to see that here, I didn't see it in L.A. Which made me think of a couple things that, that I'm kind of interested in uh, discussing with you. One is you you direct, you write, you often direct things you do not write, and you often direct things that you do write. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of quadrants there. Now, Pee Wee was uh, a very particular project, and right. uh, you know, I'm just kind of curious how how that manifests itself in your life, how that came to you, and this idea of directing your own work 
would you ever have have the the comfort level to let somebody else direct your work mm-hmm. and what that means and, and you know when working someone working with someone uh, like you know like Mr. Herman um, who existed in such a significant way for so many of us how is it to interpret or reinterpret that or create you know with that particular project um, that's that's great I, I let me talk first about uh what it was to work on, what attracted me to the Pee Wee Herman show, sure. and then maybe I could talk a little about why I write sometimes, but usually don't write. Maybe terrific. Uh, the, I'm uh, with you <laughs> on the Pee Wee. Something that's always fascinated me is that New York's the biggest theater going community. I mean, the big, biggest theater sort of community in terms of creators and uh, audience members in America, right? Um, and uh, yet. In cities like Boston and Austin and Seattle and Los Angeles, there exist theater companies that solely create comedy, works of comedy. There's not a single one in New York except possibly my company, um, which is a small off-off-Broadway company that produces very irregularly. That's so... so you mean it's dedicated to comedy? Yeah. Okay. We create only right. sort of work that's sort of funny and then usually it's other things as well but you know it's funny and that to me is a very very strange phenomenon another thing that's interesting to me is that in film and TV you have a sense of in comedy world creation you there are movies like Zoolander or Austin Powers that exist in a world that does not look like our world that is production designed uh, that has a sort of certain broader maybe even fantasy elements in theater with comedy it is almost without exception uh, something that takes place in a single unit set as someone's like living room or a kitchen, you know, whether it be period or whether it be today. So what the Pee Wee Herman show uh, offered was the idea of world creation comedy. You had here, you had a completely production design environment. You had puppets. You had a, its own set of comedic rules, um, and uh, and that that was what really hooked me to it. Um, I wasn't someone who really watched the Pee Wee Herman show a lot as a kid. Um, I obviously have a, a ton of respect for for that, but that that sort of that opportunity was very uh, exciting to me. Um, you know, my pitch obviously to to Paul Rubens when we first met was I want I want to I want to make your show theatrical. I want to make your show feel. Uh, a little more rock and roll, a little more like I, w- I don't want it to feel like a TV show on stage. Uh, though we obviously have to pay homage to all that stuff and all that iconography. I want everything to be a little brighter, a little poppier. Um, I want it to be, you know, faster paced. I want there to be a storyline uh, that uh, arcs that, uh, so that we can follow. I want us to care about Pee Wee in the way that you do in the movie. You, there's a, a buy-in and then there's an emotional payoff, but you know it's not what's true of a TV show or what we think of when we think of the Pee Wee Herman show. And that, that's those are sort of the things that I, I was really interested in bringing to it. Um, you know what was great about that experience was that Paul really trusted my sort of comedic and storytelling and design sensibilities, um, and uh, and so I was able to you know bring a lot to that within the confines of like what this sort of like iconic world and character was like um in terms of writing uh i've written a couple plays and they've all sort of uh started with the same idea was that i was not going to write them when we were doing uh the first play i ever wrote was a play about robert moses as our comic fantasia it had a couple songs that doug cohen wrote in it 
you know, I originally didn't start off as the sole writer. Um, I, I don't consider myself a writer. With I wrote a show called Dance Dance Revolution that was really as a little sort of just workshop because I was up at Williamstown Theater Festival and I couldn't figure out another play to direct and I had to direct another little one night play. Um, and I directed, and then we did that in New York. And then with Blay Blay Andrew Jackson, it was never the intention to write it at the beginning. But it got to a certain point where I sort of was just mocking in things and we had a whole script and it sort of seemed like it worked. I don't consider myself a writer with uh, the sort of uh, breadth and talent as someone like Doug Carter Bean or David Lindsay Abair or you know wh- whoever out is out there writing amazing books for musicals or plays. Uh, but I do think I do something spe- specifically well. Mm-hmm. And something very specific and I think of myself as a sort of a generator of ideas um, one of the things I think is tricky about um, about the way theater works versus film and TV is there's no such thing as work for hire so if I say to you Tommy I have this great idea for uh, a show about the shakers but it's all with drag queens I mean what a terrible idea but uh, and I'm like here's a five page treatment I think it should be like this let's work on this together and then you write something you own that idea if I don't like what you did I can't go off and be like okay I'm going to get someone else to do it actually you own the idea you set it in writing that's how theater works the playwright is God and that's one of the great things about theater but it's one of the hard things when you're a director, generator, creator. You know, how do you keep possession of the idea and the vision, you know, the ultimate vision? Obviously, it's a vision you work in collaboration with other people, and they, they define it as much as you. But how do you get to stay involved with something like that? How do you... Um, and so that, that's ultimately why I've, I've written the few things I've written. You know, I, 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 I don't take on projects to write lightly. I really love working with writers, and when I'm not, when I am the writer, I miss working with writers. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's that's sort of the story behind that. I learned two things that were huge on Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson on the journey of it, and one was about writing, and one was about uh, directing. Is it cool to just talk a little about Please, that? Please, of course. Because you made me think about that a little about when you were talking about the first workshop and then what changed for Broadway and stuff. Um, you know. Blay Blay Andrew Jackson was something we did a workshop up at Williamstown and it was really a play with songs they had like six songs at that point it was not a musical so that was you and Michael Freeman were up there yeah it was not conceived of originally as a musical it was something that was going to be at the Ohio Theater 99 seats it wasn't going to be different really from any of the other lay fair shows um, and uh, and I still can't quite define what made that strike a chord more than other shows I mean I can sort of posit things but but um, the when we got an opportunity right after Williamstown to do it in Los Angeles with Center Theater Group at the Kirk Douglas Theater, which is a great 300-seat theater out there, um, certain certain kind of objectives changed about it. Uh, Center Theater Group has this great track record of producing, getting work done on Broadway. Mm-hmm. Um, and we started getting in this kind of commercial heads mindset. It wasn't the theater's fault. It wasn't anyone's fault except our sort of wild imaginations. And I started... Which meant what? And, and led you where? It led, it led me to a place to do two things. One, to, uh, to really try to make the show commercial, what my thought of as commercial was. And I, I thought, well, a commercial show makes you cry at the end. You really care about the character. This is a try. It's about the trail of tears. You know, that's what you want to really care about Andrew Jackson. You want to like 
experience his life. You want to identify with him, and at the end, you want to know what a difficult decision he had to make and how sad the whole experience was. So we did that in Los Angeles. And what year was this? This was uh, January 2008. Okay. Uh, it was during the primaries. And um, it was a mistake. It was a big mistake. And I, uh, it still went well there, but it, it had lost uh, what the spirit of the show was. And um, when we came back to New York with, at Oscar's encouragement, we really kind of realized that... So Oscar Eustace at the Public. Oscar Eustace at the Public, sorry, mm-hmm. yeah. That we, we had... Uh, uh, we wanted to. We we were we were making decisions that weren't what, the decisions that Andrew Jackson would make, and not the original impulses of what doing the shows. And 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 here here's what I learned. I learned that the weirder and more personal and more individualistic and the like, the sort of like stranger, more distancing we made the show, the more universal it became, and the more we tried to make the thing our idea of what the largest tent possible for guys, mm-hmm. the, the more it pushed people away. And in fact, every step from the public lab to the uh, to the to the off Broadway run at the public to Broadway, we made it funnier all the way to the end. We took out a lot of the sort of what we the the sort of we just relied more on sentiment than sentimentality. And every step of the way. It gained a much larger audience mm-hmm. from it, and I think it became a lot stronger of a piece. Um, so that was a huge lesson. Right. The other thing I learned, um, and this probably not that was probably an obvious lesson to other people. But it's something I had to learn on the fly. Mm-hmm. The other thing I learned is we had these amazing Broadway designers out in LA. It was the first time I'd have a big budget, was in a big theater, and I was like, I want to make just this gorgeous thing, and it looked like a sort of like. Deadwood Brothel meets Natural History Museum, and we had a thousand moving lights. And these designers did exactly what I asked them to do, and then a thousand times more. They did such a beautiful job. And what we learned was, wow, actually making the set beautiful suggests that the dramaturgy of the show should be beautiful, which the show is not. It's an anarchic, sort of irreverent, crazy show. And one of the things that Oscar uh, Eustace really taught us was... We need to build the show, make the show as like a postmodern collage and make it no moving lights, make it uh, completely sort of no automation, make it completely actor motivated and raw and weird. And we're going to start the show with uh, in a really abrasive way with direct address that, you know, and uh, every every choice there uh, allowed them, gave a vessel within which the sort of. the crazy, crazy dramaturgy felt justified right. instead of feeling like it was somehow lacking. Right. That, yeah, because it, in, in the sense of, you know, because there was a big difference, you know, even in, I don't know, in terms of time or pages, um, what the, the distinction was from the lab to the Broadway production. But that walk in the Trail of Tears, I remember uh, the momentum of the show shifted greatly in a much different way than it did on Broadway when I saw it. You know, and I think that one of the things that's so difficult about creating something that has, and you do this I think very well, such consistent and specific tone. Right? You set up the world. Your, your job, uh, our job, yeah, yeah. we walk in is in the first couple minutes to let everybody know what they have permission to do. Do they have permission to laugh? Um, what's our relationship to this story, to these characters? Um, who are these people introducing to the world? And this idea that the incongruity between a beautiful set and a story that you sort of saw the, the rough-hewn edges of, um, that incongruity you're saying didn't work, but when you got down to to uh, the, the lab, and then and then even more so when you went into the larger space at the public, when I walk in and I see 
um, an arrow through this or a painting X'd out or something hanging upside down, I say, oh, anything's possible. Right. And so when these when these you know, storytellers come out and they form that triangle and it's, you know, the show starts in a very distinct way. It's kind of lights are going down. It's like, and then there he is in the front of this triangle, you know, we're ready to go. And and I felt that very, very deeply more so, um, you know, when I saw it uptown than when I, when I saw that. Yeah. I think we got a lot better at it. Yeah. You know, I I remember, um, I I used to have a, this, this little theater company called Backhouse Productions in the the drama bookshop on 40th street. And, uh, basically what, what happened was uh, there was a guy named Alan Hubby who runs the shop, and he had seen one of our first shows. We did a showcase, you know, same thing. Like we did our 18 performances, um, we s- scraped together I think like 3,300 dollars or something like that, and we did this show. And he saw it, and he said, I, "I'm I'm going to take the bookshop from 47th and, and 7th and move to this new space." And there is a white room downstairs, and I think if we paint it black, it can become a black box theater. And he said, I want you guys to be the resident theater company, and I'll give you wow. a desk and a phone and a computer. And as long as you sort of keep doing things down there, and that's, you know, that's going to create an energy that I think is going to work in tandem with you know, the opportunity when you walk into that bookshop, because whether you've been there for 50 years or you just got off the bus at Port Authority, like, that's where people come to buy things. Exactly. And so we were sort of part of this, this, you know, this, uh, this formation of this new... Uh, version of an of a very established cultural tradition, and we were this very no name group, and nobody knew anything about us. But we had a lab, and mm-hmm. you know that's where Height started. That's where uh, some of the other stuff that we did, um, you know, with our forty five chairs and our our black paint. Yeah, and and I remember, you know, there was something about that, you know, that early uh, time for us when any author would come in, um, David Lindsay Bear. Uh, had just published Wonder of the World, Alan would say, hey, Tommy, can you stage a scene and, and sit with David and talk to him? And so I was getting introduced to these authors oh, who I admire. And I remember Donald Margulies came, and there was a collection called Luna Park that was out, and um, it had a bunch of his short plays. And so I took some of my my members from my company, and I directed these scenes, and and he did a talk afterwards. And he talked about this idea that, that you're speaking about from your personal experience so, so clearly, which is, you know, through the specific comes the universal. Right. You know, if he could get that specific, then in a way, everything else sort of disappears and we see what we need to see. Mm-hmm. Um, Lynn and Chiara certainly understood that with Heights. Absolutely. Um, you know, that, and this idea of what commercial means. I like the commercial means making you cry, by the way. That's like, that's, that's how yeah, it translates. Yeah. Um, you know, that, you know, when people uh, asked, what did we do from off-Broadway to Broadway? They said, oh, you made it, uh, you made it bigger. You know, that's the thing, that the sense that it gets broader. Um, and in fact, there's more Spanish language. We went deeper on a lot of the relationships. We thought, no, it's not about going out. It's, it's about going down and going up. Yeah, it's about yeah. if you can really root something, then it can elevate. And I, I, I completely felt that with yeah. your show, well, too. The, we, uh, we, you know, at a certain point, you get as close as you can. You say, that's, that's the best we could do. Um, and there's something really neat when, when an audience says... We love it, and it's good enough. Um, and, and I think what we learned off-Broadway, because the second act of Heights off-Broadway, I don't even know if I could watch it uh, You know, uh, now. I mean, it happens. It was just like one big montage. Mm-hmm. It was like, oh, look, they did this, and they got the thing, and they got the thing, oh, home, boom. And like it was over, and it was like 43 minutes long. And I think what we learned off-Broadway, you know, because you guys ran for a while off-Broadway with Bloody Bloody also, yeah, yeah, yeah. is we had confidence that people wanted to spend time with this community. And so it actually allowed us to make the show longer, to throw out a bunch of stuff, um, and not just uh, 
allude to something, but, you know, showing instead of telling and all of those things. And so the show actually grew in that way, but it was only because we were so conscious of not trying to waste anybody's time off Broadway. We're like, thanks for letting us be here. I'll look in your home before 10.15, you know? And so then yeah. it, it, was a, it was something that we had to kind of learn from audience after audience after audience for those six months. All right, they're challenging us to, to go deeper. Um, because they they want to you know they want to be here they're not leaving um, so how do we address that like how do we take that and, and try to make the show the best version of whatever it can be it was funny we had some we did sort of a similar weird math on our uh, on people's experience of our show too where they uh, the uh, the show every time we did the show it got like a minute longer every production or two minutes longer. And people said, oh, it's so much shorter this time. Right. And it's just as you're figuring out what the tone is, and, you know, there's that, you know, that old, like, directing thing about, like, don't play the ending at the end. Right. As we got better and better about that, particularly at the end, it just felt like it zoomed through and was really satisfying instead of feeling, like, feeling lugubrious. And even though the show was actually longer, it felt so much shorter to people. Right. It's really interesting. Yeah, and, and that experience, I mean, of, of moving that show, you know, obviously... You know, there was a there was a period of time when you had both Pee Wee and, and Bloody Bloody running, which is yeah, yeah. which is pretty exciting and, and very rare. Um, you know, obviously the ownership of Bloody Bloody is is quite a different thing, mm -hmm. you know, than than, than the, the Pee Wee Herman show. So that opportunity when that came about to to get in there again, were you still excited to go back to work on the show? You know, kind of coming out of the the great success of the Off Broadway run. Yeah, it's one of the few shows that I've I've remounted where I was just. Uh, I, I'm just continually excited about it. The show was a real blessing for me, and I'm sure, I, you know, I, it's, the good bad is I don't know that I'll ever have a, a relationship to a show quite like that ever again. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, an emotional relationship to it. Uh, but, you know, working on something for six and a half years as a young person is really about, if that's a large portion of your adult life. And... Um, it sort of came to define my adult life, and just as it was a coming-of-age story for Andrew Jackson and of America, it was a sort of coming-of-age story of me. And so much for, for on that show for me was the first time I got to do a show, you know, at a big regional theater. At mm -hmm. the first time I got to do a show at the Public, and then to do it a, a political rock musical in the same space that Des Mackinoff did. Uh, you know, the famous Von Richtofen, his, you know, mm -hmm. political rock music was so exciting. Then my first Broadway show and then so many of the relationships I, I've been able to have out of, I've come out of, you know, not even people directly working on that, but just meeting people through it. So um, it had so many firsts that, uh, you know, it always hold a special place in my head. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I... And that's completely true of In the Heights, even more so, I think, for you. Well, I mean, and it just, I mean, uh, separate but equal, um, oh, yeah. you know, because, uh, you know, I, Lynn, Lynn Manuel wrote this early version of the show in 2000, and I'd already graduated from Wesleyan, where we both were students, but we didn't know each other. And a couple of my friends saw the show and called me about it and said, hey, when we start that theater company that we talked about, this is a musical we should do. And they had a CD and a script, and I read it, and this was in 2000, so this is 11 mm -hmm. years ago. Um, and I felt like someone had uh, told me a secret. That's kind of the, the best way to describe it. Like, I heard this music, um, of which we kind of say there's only five notes that remain. In Washington Heights and everything else is different. <laughs> but the heart of the show is there, the, the fabric of the show. And 
you know, Lynn sort of had a baby. It's like I met him when he had a baby that was a year old. And I said, all right, I'm going to help you raise this baby. And then we met Kiara along the way. You know, one of uh-huh. our producers, Jill Furman, introduced us to Kiara. And then Alex Lackamore, who had indeed it. And right. Bill Sherman, who was there from early on. And so we were all sort of taking care of this thing. But, you know, to your point, I mean, I'm 34 years old. When I first heard that show, I was 23. And so I don't really remember anything before 12. So that's, you know, like I did some stuff. I was like kicking a soccer ball and then I was in high school or something. So it's, you know, half of my life, you yeah. know, that show has been some part of it. And amazing. Uh, I don't really, I don't really remember life before it. Um, although it seemed to be fine, you know, and then afterwards <laughs> it seemed to get a little better. Um, but, you know, it, it's interesting you talk about Des and, you know, you and I both are, are people that tried as best we could to create opportunities coming mm-hmm. out of, uh, Situations where, you know, in college we were able to get our stuff on a little bit, and then you get here and you're like, oh, I got to keep on doing that. But you know, Des, who was someone that you, you, because you worked on Jersey Boys, right? You assisted Des on Jersey. Yeah, Boys. and like seeing seeing him do Tommy and then how to succeed back to back when I was I was in high school was the thing that made me think like, wow, being a theater director. I mean, you can do these two completely opposite things, and both were amazing. Right. You know. Uh, and Tommy, particularly, is someone who would like drag their feet at having to go to musicals. Uh, you know, even though I usually probably, you know, as a kid enjoyed them, I, I was just so stunned at how visceral and sort of media driven and how immediate it was. And uh, and um, yeah, yeah. But Des's story is really, you know, interesting mm-hmm. as well. well I mean, the thing about all of this, and one of the things I'm sort of curious about is. I get a chance to sit down and talk to anybody that does this, whether it's recorded or not, you know, that it's, it's so subjective, right? You know, and, and the way that you got from point A to point B to point C um, is so different from all the people that you intersect. You know, there is, there is, there's no prescribed way of doing anything, you know. Um, you know, I didn't go to grad school, and you didn't go to grad school. We right. sort of created these little theater companies that served as that for me, which was about community and getting your chops, you know, and, and just working and doing all that. You know, but this idea of uh, the mentorship that exists and this sort of apprenticeship in the business, you know, is something that I, I feel like I, I made this other choice, so I kind of missed out on that. Yeah. You know, for better or for worse, you know, and now that we're not the youngest kids on the block anymore and I see like the young Alex Timbers and the young Tommy Kales, you know, walking around with this, you know, this unquenchable energy and, and all these other things as they leap over buildings. You know, there's something about transitioning and being part of this community uh, and, and having people, and I guess my, my question to you is, I'm sure you probably talked to a lot of younger directors just about, you know, where to go and, and, how, it, and how it happens. Um, are, are there things that you did along the way that, you know, clearly you did what you did, but and it, and it happened, obviously, with with uh, hard work, and, and yet there wasn't, you know, there was a rate of ascension along the way. But were there times when you thought about not doing this? I mean, were you ever someone that said, if I don't do it by X, I'm going to get out? Or, you know, because there's an attrition that happens in our 20s, I think, with a lot of oh, people yeah. in the arts. Particularly around, like, September, saying every year people sort of go to grad school, right. and, and then, you know usually not theater, you know, and they sort of drop out. Um, the, well, I often wonder, like, I've never seen someone direct a reading other than me directing a reading. And, I, you know, I don't know how you learn how to direct a reading because it has its own specific sort of vocabulary. And I often wonder, like, to this day, when I direct a reading, I have a little bit of sense of anxiety and insecurity. I'm like, is this how, are the actors all going to think it's, like, really weird how I'm, like, structuring the day and doing this and like you know because I've 
I mean, I would love to, but then of course there's this matter of pride at this point where I can't kind of say, you know, to like you or Sam Gold or someone, hey, can I come watch you direct a reading today just to learn how it's done? So, I mean, there, I think there are these big questions and I, I, I sort of wonder like, would it have been better to, I insisted maybe three times mm-hmm. and every one of those times I learned so much about what to do, what not to do that I think to myself and that I, uh, the carry into my work today, like, well, if I assist at six people, would I know twice as much? Um, the things that I, th- I think are helpful, and, and I would love to hear what you think, too, or like what I, what I say to people, you know, because I don't think it's just about founding your own company. I don't think that's right for everyone. Mm-hmm. I don't think also New York probably needs 200 more theater companies. Um, but uh, the, you hear that, kids? <laughs> but the, you know, but that the, uh, that the, the, there are, when you're an actor, and you're auditioning for something, you can go in and perform a bit of something. When you're a designer, you can show your portfolio. As a director, you can't really show anything. You can talk about things, but some people are good talkers, some people aren't good talkers. And it has some relationship to whether you're a good director or not, but probably not like a great deal of, of, of similarity. And so the, um, the thing I think about is that there are a couple of like legitimizers, and that's all you can kind of do. There's doing... The Drama League Fellowship maybe is something that people can be like, ah, you did that thing. Mm-hmm. Or doing the Lincoln Center Director's Lab or going up to Williamstown. Or, uh, uh, you know, I'm sure there are a couple more. And each city kind of has their own version of that, right? It's like yeah. if you're in D.C., Arena Stage probably has their program or Boston yeah. and ART. Yeah. And I'll, I'll, uh, yeah, exactly. And uh, so you can do a couple of these these things that people have heard of that you're like I remember when we were um, Kevin Moriarty who runs DTC when I, uh, Dallas Theater Center when I was an undergrad at Yale um, he applied to direct um, a musical there and as a guest director and we looked at his resume and didn't really understand anything but that we had seen that he had done the Lincoln Center Director's Lab and we were like oh my gosh that's a big deal this seemed, guy seems like a great candidate mm-hmm. now in retrospect like I bet I would look at his resume right now and I'd say the Lincoln Center Director's Law is probably like one of the least most impressive things upon his resume at that time. But to us, it sort of mattered something. Right, right. It was something we, it rang a bell in our ear. We had heard about that. So, you know, it feels like as, as a director on a kind of like purely cynical mercenary level that's trying to do something, like doing those things will probably teach you some stuff, but they're good things to have on your resume. Um, it seems like assisting people is a much more sort of like helpful, practical thing. I remember hearing from people about film, going to film school for three years. You could go to spend the money going to film school for three years. You could take that money and, make a film. and just make a film, yeah. and you'll learn just as much. And uh, you know that's why I thought a lot about theater, like uh, theater school. I think it's right for some people, not right for some. Uh, you know, people talk about like music conservatory, like you're able to play a horn really well by the end, you know, perfectly. But is it you know, if you had a particular way you played it that was so extraordinary, is that going to be sort of bleached out of you or beaten out of you? I, to this day, you know, I'm actually finally directing a Shakespeare, but I've never directed a Shakespeare, and I don't have the grad school background of knowing exactly how you direct a Shakespeare. So it's going to be a little scary. You know, the, the MFA program might have come in really handy. But, um, right. but uh, so I think there are pros and cons to all those different paths. Yeah, you know, and also just looking at some of the you know, some of the things that you've done and thinking about some of the things that you've done. You've done a lot of new work. Um, I've found myself being attracted to new work uh, sort of as a, you know, the, the first and second look. Um, but I, um, 
but I think that you know there's something about being an interpretive artist and being a creative artist. It's kind of a dance that we do as you know as directors. I mean, you're mm-hmm. talking about that. Um, you know, so you know there are you know there are shows out there that existed that maybe the world hasn't seen for a while, and there is part of me that says, oh, maybe going in and exploring that would be exciting. I find that my gut goes to to new work and to create opportunities in that way. But I also, I don't know that, I'm someone that feels like there's probably people that can do Shakespeare better than me and like I want them to do it so I can go and watch it. Yeah. Know, I'm a big consumer of theater and I feel like we can all exist in the landscape. You know, when you're talking about, you know, the, this how the sound of Broadway over these last few years has changed, um, Heights opened the same year that Passing Strange did. Right. And I remember how exciting that was. These two shows existed. You know, there was a this idea that they were on other ends of some sort of spectrum where it's like it was this versus that but we all went to see Passing Strange the company of Passing Strange all came to see our show yeah. and we thought wow that's look, exciting look what's, look what's on the street right now you know you know, with Spring Awakening obviously having a contribution to that as well and the acceptance of that on a, on a larger scale absolutely but you know I think it was from the again the specificity like how those are shows that told their truth as best they could and and it reached a lot of people, you know, and, and it got to a lot of people. You know, when someone says, I'm going to do a production of, uh, you know, when, when Bart Scherer does South Pacific or, you know, Diane Paulus does Hair, it's like, great. Like, I'm going to go buy a ticket and sit there and, like, let it wash over me. And I'm glad that that exists. You know, I don't know that that's me. I don't know that I'm capable of it or if it's uh, or whatever it is. But I like that there are all these things out there and that other people can go and knock them out. And I can, you know, and I can applaud them and, and uh and, and sort of find my way as as a participator, as consumer. Because mm-hmm. I love that. I mean, that's the thing. When the lights go down, there's still a chance, right? Like, this could be the night, you know? Yeah. And, and really good theater exists in a way that is so, you know, is so singular that it happened on this night for me and this group of people. And there's something that forms, you know, the way that you look at each other when you're walking out of a show, whether you're with somebody you know or not, like, as you all kind of go and go to walk up that aisle like we're all kind of you know there's this vibe you know yeah. the show really kind of gets across the footlights and connects in that way I would say the two really sort of like healthy things that have happened for me over the last couple of years are one having done a show on Broadway uh, and seeing how impossible it is that that to get to get that it is to put that together to make it happen that someone actually like writes the show that I now have this much more healthy relationship to seeing shows. I I, I am to seeing shows on Broadway. I'm mm-hmm. generally like, you know, whether I like think it's hugely artistically successful or not. I'm like, wow, they actually did it. It's they a miracle it that it even exists. Yeah. And then the other thing I think that happened was um, you were talking a lot about like, well, you know, there's directing rivalry, which is like, I, it was so true, and I feel it. I, and I'm not saying I'm like completely immune from it, but a couple of the last couple of years, I've kind of gotten a lot better at being like, you know, what I do is not. Not only is it not quite the same as what other people do, um, uh, or as or or and what other people do is not the same as what other people do. But I actually now go into and it sometimes freaks writers out, which. I, you know, I, it shouldn't, but 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 uh, you know, I'll go, I'll get you know handed a play or a musical, and I'll meet with the writer and I'll say, you know, I really liked your show. I I would I think it would be so much fun to stage this, but I'll be honest with them. I'll be like, I think you should hire um, Tommy Kale. I think you should hire Trip Coleman, or I think you should hire Casey Nicola. I'll be like very clear. I'm like, 
these people would do it even better than me. And if I know that I'm not the person that would do it the best for you, I shouldn't be doing it. You deserve the best person. And I don't want to be sort of selfish about that. And as soon as, as I'm able to sort of like articulate that, I think it, it sort of like kind of set me free from being like jealous or sort of like um, as like sort of like, uh, you know, why, you know, being like, oh my God, why is that person getting to do that? Or like, I wish I had their career. Yeah, I don't, I don't feel that way anymore. And and I'm sure that's a part of growing up as well. But it's also just understanding um, if you can really think about, and I think about this about the shows you you've worked on, like you know, when we're talking about like who's going to make an exciting revival of The Wiz, like it totally makes sense to me that it's you. You know, when we're talking about In the Heights, like I know it's all in retrospect, but it seems like it makes perfect sense to me that you would have been that guy. You know what I mean? And so uh, I think if we can like really get, you know, while we're still trying to like push the boundaries, understand specifically like what we're sort of like the best at, I mean, that's like, I think that's really liberating. And with that, that is, I mean, where am I going to go after that? You brought it around. We're talking about beginnings and ends, and now I got a gimmick um, and all that. So thank you, sir, for coming in. Thank you for this time. This I was a fine it. hour. It was so of my much life. fun to talk to you. All right. Thanks again. See you. Thank you for listening to In Conversation With. This Masters of the Stage program was made possible by support from Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members.